All right. Um, thank you for everybody for coming here at the end of the week. And um, I hope you're here because you're interested in potentially doing what we did at Virginia Mason. And um, our goal is really to tell you about how we did it and, and the benefits of it um, with the hopes that this will spread to other places. And so we'll uh, start out. Uh, neither of us has any um, uh, potential conflict of interest or real conflict of interest with what we're presenting today. And here are the the learning objectives. And again, it really is a little bit about why to do this and also how to do this and then what the benefits of those are. And uh, hopefully you'll have some questions about how to integrate this into your own practice. So we both work at Virginia Mason Medical Center, which is in Seattle. Um, we are about a 600 physician group and uh, this will be our 100th year. Uh, this is the original drawing on the left and this is the the fancy new drawing on the right and um, on the bottom are clinic locations and we also have a second hospital in a rural part of central Washington. And I'm sure you've seen many of these slides uh, already all week um, and uh, you know the, the overdose deaths keep going up and of course much of this is due to illicit drugs, heroin and fentanyl, um, but we're also learning now that some of these overdoses despite the fact that patients haven't been prescribed opioids for some even years are still related to prescription opioids. And so uh, I think it's really important for us to recognize that uh, the sort of mandatory weaning or um, cutting patients off of opioid therapy is uh, not necessarily a safe thing to do at all times. And so we've been really committed to continuing to go through the journey as things evolve with our patients and, and keep them stable. Uh, for our medical center, um, we have about 6,000 patients, I think, on chronic opioid therapy. Um, crisis came in about 2015, and part of that crisis was because the Department of Health in Washington State closed a, a prominent pain clinic uh, called the Seattle Pain Centers, and they had seven locations and something like 20,000 patients that were then in the community without care. And so this really got the attention of our executives. Prince died the same year of a fentanyl overdose, and so there was a lot of attention paid to this. It had been building, but for us, thus, this became really the crisis point. And this is um, our pyramid, and this is our driving kind of uh, organization around how we take care of patients. And the main point of this is the patient is really what this is all about. They're at the top of this pyramid, and so what we do is really to support them. Um, but we do this with um, these values of teamwork as a, a long-standing and important part of what we do. So we have about 6,000 patients, I think, in our system. Um, those are distributed primarily in primary care, which has about 4,500 or 5,000 of those. And some medical subspecialties, sleep medicine actually does a lot of low-dose opioid prescribing uh, for restless legs and other sleep-related issues, neurology for neuropathic pain, and then, of course, hematology, oncology. Um, we in physical medicine and rehabilitation follow something like 800 patients. And we used to have, we have seven physiatrists, uh, five of those are board certified in pain, um, but we used to have people who were more interested and willing to do uh, opioid therapy for patients and for a number of reasons. That's really not something people want to do anymore. So we've got me and another uh, physician who's older than I am who are still following these patients, but we're having a hard time finding the right providers to do that. And so because of this and because we're very busy doing other things, we, we found that we really had a problem in, in terms of our ability to take care of patients. So um, part of what we did um, to implement a process that was going to take care of patients in a more 
safe and organized fashion was to get together with an executive sponsor, a team of people from all across the medical center to design standards about how we would uh, take care of uh, these patients. And I think Amanda might talk a little bit more about this in the future, but the blurry photograph is uh, some of the prime people uh, from various departments there. Um, we have an arrangement with our primary care providers, what we call a service uh, agreement, which says that they'll take care of patients who are very stable and who have relatively low doses. They've set their bar at 90 morphine equivalents and won't follow patients with higher doses than that. But they have been very good about continuing to follow their patients. And I know this says 120 morphine equivalents, but they've since, since the CDC recommendation came out, lowered that to 90 morphine equivalents. So they're taking care of the pretty stable uh, patients with low doses, and the patients who are pretty unstable or on high doses or are really complicated reside within uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation. And so we had this problem of really limited access. We're trying, we're a growing spine practice. We've got six neurosurgeons. The demand to see us for those kinds of things is really high. We have in the state of Washington um, a mandatory pain consultation, pain specialist consultation, if a patient's going to remain on 120 morphine equivalents or higher. Uh, law requires them to see a physiatrist or a pain specialist, and so we have all of that demand. And of course, the environment is changing very rapidly, and I think it's turning into a higher risk and, uh, environment, and there's a lot more discomfort with tra uh, treating patients with chronic opioid therapy. We have you know, this older physician and myself who've been doing things for 20, 25 years the same way, and now the science is changing, and yet we have this patient panel who doesn't really appreciate that. I think that's probably similar to many places. And this can be a really lonely and uncertain kind of practice. Uh, this is not always black and white, it's mostly gray. And so you've got some patients who are doing really well, you've got some patients who clearly have opioid use disorder, but probably 80 or 90% are somewhere in the middle where there are some aberrancies, there are things that aren't going like we think they should, but we don't know that the answer is to discharge them from our practice. So we wanna take care of these patients. And uh, we decided to incorporate clinical pharmacists into our, our care pathway to do that. Um, I don't know why this slide is in here other than we prescribe a whole lot of opioids in the United States, as we all know. Uh, that's starting to decline a little bit. In 2018, uh, we made uh, this pain management and taking on opioids a goal of our organization. We usually have a couple yearly goals in both in 2018 and 2019. We've kept this at the top uh, of our focus. Take it away, Amanda. So I'm gonna spend some time just talking a little bit more about our organizational focus and then how that trickled down into why we decided to use pharmacists in the ambulatory setting. And so as um, Andrew mentioned, we have a handful of four goals each year, and it's been in 2018, 2019, and we're looking forward to 2020, still having opioids as a major focus across our entire healthcare system. And how we have this set up, and um, I always like to share this, oh, sorry, share this slide, because I've presented on our work at Virginia Mason before, of just the structure, because we get lots of questions on how do you structure all this work across a large medical center and keep everybody aligned. So where we start at the top is with what we call the driver team. 
And this driver team is our executive medical director. We have an anesthesiologist on it, myself um, from pharmacy, uh, clinical nurse quality, and then a program manager. And then the five of us are really responsible for the long-term strategy of where we're gonna take the entire organization. And then also keeping an eye out on what's going on in the environment. Um, and the culture around Virginia Mason and Seattle, and how do we keep up with any legislative changes as well. Then our guiding team is much larger. It has about 30 to 35 individuals on it. It's made up of hospitalists, surgeons, inpatient, outpatient providers from all over um, our continuum. We have behavioral health specialists, social workers, we have um, psychiatrists on there, again, pharmacy, nursing. And then this is the group, the guiding team, that gets down to where they're making the decisions of how the rubber meets the road. We decide in what order are we going to do CMEs across the organization. Which teams are we going to highlight and focus on. We decide, we take what the board is requiring us to do for our organization and then make strategic decisions from there. And how we bucket all of our work then is through the developmental boxes. And so every bit of work that we do either falls under organizational standards, education, Cerner, which is our EMR, and we start to look at it in those buckets, and then we roll it out into those five departments where we have our Department of Primary Care, which is DPC, and it, so it goes Department of Primary Care, Department of Surgery, Department of Medicine, Anesthesia, and then our hospital and ED. Um, and so this is just one way that we have set up our strategic planning and it's been quite successful for us. Now, we did not get to this in year one. It took us um, 2017, as Andrew mentioned, to really figure out how we were gonna structure this, but with this structure, we've been extremely successful in maintaining um, our, um, our goals and objectives and being able to measure our outcomes. And what we have really driving it is, in Washington State, we have laws and regulations, and these are the regulatory codes of how providers must prescribe opioids within our state. So if you are not familiar with your state laws, please become familiar with them, which I'm sure all of you are. But we have to balance our state laws, best practice recommendations from the CDC, as well as we have the Agency of Medical Directors group in Washington, which is best practice standards written by Dr. Friedman and other um, pain specialists in our state. And our big focus and message from our organizational goal was that pain management is plus minus opioid management. And that was the biggest cultural shift that we had to make um, early on in 2015, 16, 17 when we started this work. And how do we do that? It's with team-based care and team-based medicine. And as Andrew mentioned, it's not just the physicians themselves. We have to bring other team members on. And unfortunately in society, Medication is easy. It's what patients expect to be able to take. Just give me that magic pill, my pain will go away, I'll feel better. And so pharmacists were the right fit to come in and start to, as the medication experts, to have those conversations with patients to start to help them understand why not medication or non-opioid options and then help guide them to better options, whether that be to work with our pain psychologists or to look at our behavioral health team, get into massage, physical therapy, and different things like that. And so from our organizational perspective, that was our approach that then we started to trickle out and figure out that pharmacy had a really big role to play. And that's um, where I'm gonna take us next. And before we get into pharmacy specifically, this again for your review are just the standard guiding principles that we put forth 
as an organization that helps to define what our true north is. And everything that we do, we go back to these five pieces and say, okay, is it still aligned? And we also ask ourselves, do we need to adjust this at all? But we have found that truly this has maintained us for the last several years um, to move in the right direction. So now I'm going to get into why pharmacists and how we started to really integrate our pharmacists into um, complex chronic pain management in the ambulatory setting and what do we do? So I myself am a clinical pharmacist, residency trained with two years, and I um, started in primary care and then moved into the complex chronic pain world with Dr. Friedman. And at Virginia Mason, um, we have 22 clinical pharmacists that work in the ambulatory setting with the majority of them in primary care. So the idea of having a pharmacist provider integrated onto the team was not novel for um, our department in terms of pain management. It was just capitalizing on great work that we had already done, but having them focus on pain was new. And so when we started to talk about this, the first question is, well, what do you really want them to do? And so make sure if you're considering this or you already have pharmacists embedded, really ask yourself, what is the intent of having this operator on the team? And if it's to do medication prior authorizations, I will slap your hand and tell you no. That's not a good use of pharmacist time. Um, and so we really started to get down into the nitty gritty and the clinical aspects. And as Andrew mentioned, there's a lot of regulatory things and it's hard to keep it all straight when you're that provider in the room and the patient's telling you about their pain and their suffering. So we wanted the pharmacists to participate in the regulatory reviews and the best practice assessments and make sure everybody's on the same page. Patient safety assessments. So in Washington, there's a whole list of you should do this and you shall do that and how our documentation looks. We found that over 50% of our physicians were not documenting what was required by law um, in their notes. It was all up in their heads, but they never actually got it out in their note templates. And so bringing the pharmacist on, we were always able we're type A, we're detail-oriented, we're gonna make sure everything's in there. So bringing us on, we ensured that the safety assessments were completed. Obviously, review the medications. We are the med experts. We've spent years going over them, and so it was very easy for us to quickly pick up on times when dosages need to be adjusted based off um, kidney dysfunction, liver dysfunction. If a new medications were started and we had concerns, we could take that bigger holistic approach. Um, what we receive feedback from most of our physicians say, I'm only gonna to touch the meds on the med list that I'm prescribing and I'm familiar with and that I deal with. They're like, I'm not gonna do anything else. I doubt Andrew's gonna really look at any insulin dosages or fun things like levothyroxine and different things like that where the pharmacist could look at the big picture and really talk with the patient and help to prioritize all the medication and medical needs. Comorbid issues, drug-drug interactions are huge. The big ones that we uh, look into, which I'll talk about a little bit later, are um, depression, anxiety, and sleep management. Basically, you don't have chronic pain without at least one of those other three things, if not the whole gamut. And then non-opioid treatment, and then tapering. And um, tapering is uh, a huge focus for a lot of people, but our approach, our organization, is thoughtful tapering with the patient engagement, patient involved, and really to be um, not cut patients off, but take our time with them and really help them understand the benefits of it and work with them and have those pauses and the plateaus and the tapering process, which takes a lot of effort, which the pharmacists have more time to do than what our physicians do. So again, the scope of the pharmacist, if you are considering this um, within your state, know what the pharmacist scope is. So we work under a very robust collaborative drug therapy agreement 
That allows the pharmacist to start, stop, adjust all medications um, that we would like, including controlled substances. We all have our own DEA numbers. We can order any laboratory um, results that are needed to align with the medications or the diseases that we are helping the physicians and managing with them. What we do not do is we do not diagnose, we do not order imaging, and we do not um, administer any injections of medications. And we are fortunate because uh, I do get questions often about the reimbursement and the revenue aspect of having a pharmacist on the team. We are recognized as mid-level providers. So just as our ARMPs and PAs are paid, pharmacists are paid that same amount from commercial and self-funded um, insurance plans in Washington State. So there is also a revenue driver to having a mid-level provider on the team um, to assist the physicians with the hundreds of, hundreds of, or thousands of opioid patients that we have in our system. So again, as Andrew mentioned, our top teams that have um, chronic opioid therapy or COT patients are primary care, neurology, and physical medicine rehab. And our approach and our thought is, okay, we can work really, really hard to try to change the culture and the prescribing patterns and uh, the work that's done in the visits for 600 providers. Or we could look at a small group like the pharmacists where we can focus in on 17 providers scattered throughout primary care, neuro, and PMR, and they can be really the owners and the drivers of that cultural shift. So it's a lot easier to rein in 17 people than it is to rein in 600. And so again, they were a key linchpin in our work toward aligning best practice standards. They also became critical to the education, so standardizing how we educate our team members. And we spend a lot of time educating providers and nurses and pharmacists, but what about the frontline team? They're having just as much discussion with these patients. Our phone room, our medical assistants, our call center, they're also talking to these patients over the phone and delivering messages. So the pharmacists were a great segue into bringing everybody on board and having that same educational opportunity. And if medical assistants have questions in clinic, they can come quickly and easily to the pharmacists. Our physicians typically have busier schedules, they have more going on, and the pharmacists are just another educational um, team member to be there to help decide what to do with complex patients. And as I mentioned, the regulatory analysis and organizational alignment. So when we looked at it, there's a lot of different places that this could go. And at Virginia Mason, we focused on two big buckets of work on where our pharmacists would focus their time. And that was transitions of care and then in the ambulatory clinics. And I do want to um, state in the ambulatory clinics to define that this is about chronic pain management. The pharmacists are not involved right now in any acute pain management. So in our transitions of care setting, what we focus on are patients going in for um, neurosurgeries or orthopedic surgeries, and they're already on chronic opioid therapy. So as we all know, these patients have a much harder time managing their pain post-op, and they typically have a lot more fear associated with what their experience is gonna be before they even go through it. And so what we have set up is they will meet with the pharmacist um, sometime in their pre-op management, and that individual will begin to set the expectations of what to, what, what's gonna happen. Yes, you're gonna have more pain. We anticipate that, we know that. That does not mean that we're just gonna skyrocket your opioids on the inpatient side. This is gonna be your discharge plan. This is how much medication you're gonna get. This is how long we're gonna increase the dose, then we're gonna taper it back down. And we've also set it up to where the pharmacist sees the patient at one week post-op. The beauty of this is uh, we have a plethora of physician assistants in ortho and neuro, 
and we didn't have good standards of care. Sometimes they would prescribe, one PA might prescribe 120 tablets at discharge every single time, another one might prescribe 50 tablets at discharge every single time. If the patient was coming in from central Washington, we gave them more because we didn't know if they could get back over the mountain pass to get back to us in a couple weeks. And so it was just all over the place. So by bringing the pharmacist on, they had that expectation already set in place. So at the time of discharge, our physician assistants pretty much followed the recommendations to a T. Every now and then maybe they tweaked it based off complications, but the patient knew and the team knew before the patient even came in for their procedure what was gonna be their discharge opioid plan. And we had that post-op appointment scheduled, so there was no lingering concerns of, well, who are you gonna follow up with? How quickly can we get you in? All that was in place. And then that way our teams could focus on the healing process and the appropriate assessment of the patient when they came back, not listen to the patient say, I ran out of meds early, I need more meds, and then your visit time gets sucked up with that. The pharmacist was already taking care of it. And then in the chronic opioid setting in the clinics, again, risk assessments, we do a lot of medication rotations um, between opioids. The evidence for that nece isn't necessarily stellar, but it is something psychologically that our patients do latch on to. So taking the time to do that rotation, decrease the dose, check in with the patient, follow up with them, it takes time. And so we have had success with that. And again, the opioid tapering and the withdrawal management. And so how do we have those thoughtful conversations with the patients, write out what the taper plan is gonna be for those first um, several drops down, be that point person. Um, our patients in the EMR have direct email access to all of us providers, we call it portal messaging. So we can get five portal messages in two days from a patient who's tapering and they're giving us updates constantly and that can clog up our providers' inboxes. And so having the pharmacist available to help triage that is extremely um, helpful. And then non-opioid management. And what we found was, our assumption was the majority of our patients on COT have tried other treatment modalities. And the key word there is that was our assumption. And when we actually get into it and we start looking in our primary care team, our PMR, our neuro team, many patients hadn't. And many patients had come to us already on opioids five, seven, 10 years ago, and we just continued, but we didn't have any records for what they had tried previously. And so doing a deep dive into that and retrying non-opioid options for med management um, was another huge focus for us. And so as I mentioned, we had a lot of primary care pharmacists and so pain management was not in their purview. They were doing all cardiovascular risk reduction, smoking cessation, already doing behavioral health, depression, anxiety, but pain. I'm pretty sure I scared my entire team when I told them that we're gonna start working on opioids and they were terrified. And so what we did was had a very thoughtful six month training and onboarding process. And so it started out for about a month of didactics, very thoughtful didactics. They had assigned CE programs. Over half the team went to a live CE program on Saturday on long-acting and extended release opioids. We partnered with the specialists um, in our organization to do one and two hour lunch sessions of case studies and reviews. And so that first little bit was just getting the team familiar with these medications because it's scary. Opioids are scary if you're not familiar with them, and so they'd shied away from them for years. And so first was didactics. And then we spent a couple months of pulling the pharmacists offline for a few hours at a time, just shadowing the doctors. So going in the room with Dr. Freeman, just listen to him, just listen to how he addresses the patient concerns, because it's, it's different. It's not as objective as getting your blood pressure to less than 140 over 90. At this point, we're taking emotional 
um, responses and multifactorial socioeconomic issues that are at play as well into consideration. So they spent time shadowing the physicians and then they started to do joint visits. And so in these joint visits, the pharmacist goes in first, starts all the assessment, does the initial patient interview, focuses on the med management, came out with a handoff to the physician, say, hey, all's going well, keep the meds, or hey, they're ready to taper, here's the taper plan. And then our physicians would go in and finish out the appointment, and then they'd ultimately be responsible for all the billing and the documentation. And then from there, we moved on after about that six-month period where the pharmacist is all solo visits. So the only time that the pharmacist and the physicians are in the room together in a visit is on our extremely complex patients where it's a thoughtful approach where we want the whole care team involved in the discussion. So this is another good reason why we embedded pharmacists because it improves the access to our physicians because we're doing these appointments on our own. We have our own patient panel, our own schedules throughout the day. Um, of up to 15 patients that were seen. And then over time, we started with just the stable chronic opioid therapy patients with lower MEDs, everybody that's 90, 50 or lower. And then we grew into those more complex patients where we're spending more time with them doing the tapering and we're getting the patients in the door that are 1,000 plus MEDs or way over 500. And so we're now at that phase because we've had the pharmacists embedded since 2015. Um, to where everybody's doing that, whether you're in primary care, neuro, or in physical medicine or rehab. So this was our process of getting them trained um, to the point to be comfortable with opioid management and pain management. Another key thing is make sure you delineate the roles of the team members. And so I mentioned earlier about the ask. Be very clear on what the ask is of why you want to add a pharmacist to the team, but also know what everybody's role is. And so we were very thoughtful on everybody's task. And I will say one key player that we added, which is unique to Virginia Mason, that I would strongly recommend considering, regardless of if you have a pharmacist involved or not, is somebody a champion that we call a champion. So this is our chronic opioid therapy or COT champion, and it's a physician. And in each section in our Department of Primary Care, Neuro and PMR, we have, well not PMR because everybody's a COT champ, but, um, <laughs> but we have a COT champ that's a physician, and they're the re physician responsible for the outcomes and the data of their section. They partner with the pharmacist to make sure that they have everything that they need. They champion all the um, team accountability and the education that needs to be in place. Because bringing the pharmacist on is great, and they are responsible for aligning best practice standards, but sometimes it's difficult to have somebody who's a non-physician telling a bunch of physicians what to do. So having that partnership with the COT champ um, has also been a huge benefit for us, and it creates more of a partnership and a team approach to how we're going to change the practice patterns within um, our different clinic sites. And so our appointments, oh, we're missing the arrow. So our appointment cycle um, that we have is for us at Virginia Mason, you must come in and receive prescriptions and a visit. We do not do them over the phone or over uh, messaging. And so every patient comes in at least four times a year because they're coming in quarterly. And so what we do is we alternate it. So they'll see Andrew one visit, three months later they'll see me, three months later they'll see Andrew, three months later they'll see me, and we'll just continue to go back and forth in this model. Every now and then, depending on his access or mine, maybe potentially they'll go two or three visits seeing one of us, but then they'll eventually come back in and see the other. Um, some patients enjoy the pharmacist so much that they only see the physician once a year. 
Sometimes it's the other way around. We have patients that have been with our physicians for 10, 12 years, and they do not want to work with anybody new. And so they see him all year long, and then they only see me once a year. And that once a year is what I have up here called the annual visit. And so I alluded to earlier, we have lots of regulations in Washington State of the shoulds and the shalls and what you must document, and we were failing miserably at that back five, six years ago. And so this annual appointment ensures that every single thing that's required of us by state and federal laws to be documented is documented in the patient's chart. And so that happens in our annual visit. And these are just the seven elements that we're required to always have. And these are reviewed at every quarterly appointment, but they just don't always get captured in the chart, depending on if they're documented right away, if dictation happens immediately. One of our providers, he dictates about a week after every single appointment. He's a little bit behind, so information gets lost. Um, so this annual appointment is a great way to just set the standards. And this is also when we start to have the very real conversations around policy, and urine screens, because those are still difficult things that we're doing to shift the culture with our patients within our organization. So at minimum, once a year, urine screens are completed in that annual appointment, and our policy is reviewed and signed and scanned into the chart. So this is our process for how we alternate and integrate them into the appointment cycle, and then our annual appointment that the pharmacists are solely responsible for completing. And this is also a um, quality metric for our organization. For all of the uh, thousands of COT patients in our organization, every single one of them must have an annual appointment um, in a rolling 12 to 13 month period. And our pharmacy department is responsible for completing that and reporting up through the organizational goal and up to the board. And so the outcomes. You know, what, what, have, what have we seen? What's been the benefits of it? Um, and very simply, um, as mentioned, access. So initially, we just added a 0.3 FTE of a pharmacist into our physiatry clinic, and that resulted in 800 additional visits that our physicians could see in a way because we could take those stable, low-acuity visits off of them, put them on the mid-level provider of the pharmacist, free him up to see the brand-new patients, the new injuries, and anything that was a higher level of acuity. Um, so we did see our physician wait time in terms of access decrease by adding the pharmacist. Over 26% of the patients that we saw in the first two years of embedding a pharmacist in PMR were prescribed non-opioid medication for the first time. Increased awareness of adherence, lots of focusing on tapering. We have been extremely successful, and there's, I'll show you here in just a second, of taking our patients at higher doses and actually bringing them down successfully and stabilizing them on lower doses by implementing the pharmacist. We do a lot more management of sleep disorders and disturbances and behavioral health needs. So we have a process automatic referrals to our sleep department for um, sleep study workups. We work closely with them. Our behavioral health team, um, they're fully integrated into our um, PMR team. We have a pain psychologist, so direct referrals to them. And our other ambulatory sites, how do we get them in to see our social workers and our psych teams? So we work closely with them. And then, um, a central resource. As mentioned, we have 600 providers or physicians. How do we manage 600 physicians? Will you give them a much smaller pool of people to go to that have the same information um, centralized? And that's where the pharmacists have been. So this is just um, some of the publications that we put out uh, about a year or two ago. So in 2014, that sort of line of demarcation there is when we embedded the pharmacists into um, our physiatry group. And in those first two years, we were able, as you see, to increase um, 
the urine drug screen completion rate and the signs medication completion rate, and that's continuing to go up here in 2019. We are up in the 90 percentile or percents for both of those. Um, and as you can see, again, we have that, the pharmacist started on the team is that red line there in 2014. And we didn't see much change in the morphine equivalent dose with doses, which is on the y-axis. Not much of a change in the morphine equivalent dose for those patients that are in like the 90 to 300 range with the pharmacist involvement. But in our patients that were up over 1,000 and more in that five, six, 700 range, in those patient populations with the pharmacist involvement, we actually saw their doses start to come down. So again, having more time to focus on the meds only because I'm very upfront with patients. I'll say, I'm not gonna diagnose you. If you have a brand new injury or a brand new concern, you need to see Dr. Friedman. Me and you, our focus is something completely different. It's more about the medications. And so when they come to see me, they know I'm not gonna sit and talk and do a big physical assessment that they might ask him to do every single time he comes in because they think they have a new twinge in their back or something else is going on. And so my focus is on the meds and it's much, much easier to bring down those doses. And so this has been um, just the result, uh, just a couple pictures from what we published recently on the success of integrating the pharmacist into our clinic setting. And this is PMR data alone. And as I mentioned, we also have 17 pharmacists in primary care doing the same work. And that's the majority of where our chronic opioid therapy patients are um, taken care of. And this uh, data would be even more staggering um, if we included our primary care results here as well. And so at this time, I'm gonna hand it back to Andrew, and he's gonna talk from that physician perspective, um, what were some of the um, challenges that we, and barriers that we face, but also what have been some of our successes. Thanks. Um, so, you know, some of the things Amanda talked about in drug-drug interactions and drug-condition interactions, those are things that pharmacists are really specialized in doing. And I would say when Amanda started, um, those were the things that she was really focused on. Uh, that's really helpful. The other thing, though, is it's really hard to be objective about how to treat patients in this gray zone. Um, it's both difficult because we don't have good outcome metrics. We want people to have improved function, but it's really hard to define that. You know, those PEG scores uh, or function scores, they may not change very much, and patients will report things that, you know, you don't, you don't see them functioning very well. So that objectivity is hard. And then for me, when I've had a relationship with a patient for 20 years, it's hard to be objective. I know that patient. I care about them. And when they come in and tell me about suffering, I think there's transference and counter-transference that occurs that having a third person involved really helps to mitigate. And then, you know, when I feel uncomfortable not knowing what way to go with the decision, I want to help the patient, but I think they might be at some risk. And gosh, I'm feeling like my arm is being twisted. It's really helpful to have another objective person there to see the patient or to confer with. And so we've moved to having a weekly conference on patients that are um, having difficulty as well. And I think, you know, both from protecting ourselves from a medical legal perspective, doing the right thing for the patient, and just feeling a little less isolated, it's been really helpful because it's, it's really not been the case that we would share patients between physicians. Um, we would follow our own panel. And so we never had that before. Um, Patient education is something that the pharmacists do much better than we do. If I want to look at the patient's history of what's been tried before, I haven't been very good at documenting that, but I look at Amanda's notes and she's got it all laid out there when it was tried, what the outcome was. And um, 
I think pharmacists are better at that than, than physicians are, honestly. And, and in some ways, this has really helped our team emotionally not feel so burned out as well. And then the data stewardship part is, is great. Pharmacists are really good with spreadsheets, <laughs> I think. And um, We've had challenges. Um, some of the challenges you know, I thought we would have, which is, geez, every time a patient comes in and sees me, they do have a new complaint. There's a new nuance to what's going on. I think and we might need to adjust the dose. But my feeling is that when they are on this stable thing with the pharmacist, I don't know, but I don't think they come in with that many new complaints, and that's been kind of surprising to me. It's You're not going to need to justify the reason you're getting the medicine. You're just here to get it safely, and we'll talk about other things we can do, but that hasn't really been a barrier. Differences of opinion between the pharmacist and the physician have been um, an issue at times, and um, th those are healthy discussions to have, and uh, sometimes I think there have been cases where the pharmacist has said, I don't really feel right treating this patient anymore. I'm going to withdraw from this. But I can only think of two or three cases where that's occurred. Uh, and for the most part, when these differences of opinion occur, it's just a good motivation to have a more in-depth discussion about the patients. Um, the patient pushback has been actually kind of rare. Uh, we put flyers in the lobby saying, why am I seeing a pharmacist and explaining what they do. There are a couple of patients that have pushed back and said they don't want to see the pharmacist. And honestly, sometimes that's because the pharmacist is being more rigid than the physician is, and they kind of like the less rigid way of approach. Um, we have not really had provider pushback uh, on this. We really appreciate the help, and it's been, um, I think, really great for us. So the next things, we, we have just added a nurse practitioner who has a lot of experience in pain. I think that's been helpful and will um, maybe the, be the way we're going in the future. Um, we've added this interdisciplinary conference, which I think um, is one of the most important uh, outcomes of this whole thing. Um, the pharmacists have helped us with buprenorphine training, and our physicians are all getting wavered um, because we're trying to transition patients at high risk to buprenorphine and are seeing good success with that. Um, we, we have a bunch of anesthesiologists, and they do injections, and they haven't been managing chronic opioid therapy, but we really want them to, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I think the future um, of finding other things besides opioids is where we're not seeing enough movement. We need to move our uh, payers to um, help us with this, and we have been able to move our, um, our administration toward this. And so my boss is you know, asking us when we're going to get another pain psychologist, which is great. Um, partnerships with palliative care are moving forward. And then I think just to call out this issue of standards around elderly patients, well, the rate of death from prescription opioids in the general population is going down. The rate in older patients is going up, and that's because they become less tolerant of these medicines. They start to have metabolic changes that we need to recognize and put more standards around. So that's a current focus of work for us, just to really get that nailed down. This is Amanda's slide, mm -hmm. but um, uh, she's already mentioned having a provider champion and somebody to say, this is a great way to go, and we're going to do this. Um, and Know, take down any roadblocks is really important. Um, starting with um, a, gr a small group, so Amanda was the first person and only pharmacist doing this for a couple of years. She became really good at it. She's still the best, but you know we've got some other pharmacists uh, that are doing this now, and it's it's scalable. Um, developing a timeline for follow-up. I don't know what you mean by that, but that's certainly important. Um, and getting the patient buy-in has not really been uh, such a, a barrier at all. I think they like it. They like to have access to. There are cases where people do come in with a new injury and it needs to be evaluated, and the pharmacist will then pull the physician in or will get an appointment in a, a day or two to take care of those issues 
or occasionally they'll send them to the emergency department. So this all does require a culture shift. Um, it's, it's been really helpful for us to have one of our top executives supporting this, and I think the key players, clinical players, have really supported it as well. Um, this isn't a demonstration of a multidisciplinary approach um, and just a multi-person approach, um, and that's really valuable. Um, I never, I often don't really like chronic opioid therapy visits. You know, it's more about putting the numbers in correctly and writing the prescription properly than it's about any thinking or actually making any decisions. And so I didn't really feel like I was working at the top of my license to do that. And so the very simple cases when the pharmacists are there to take care of them, that's, that's helpful and, and I think a benefit to me. Um, I think demonstrating what you're doing and actually getting some outcomes like we've been able to do is, is helpful to um, kind of keep, keep the um, pharmacists there with, um, you know, there's, there's lots of challenges about resources and so, you know, if we want to add another point to FTE, that's often scrutinized, but we've um, been able to show the results that it's worth it. And in our state, uh, the pharmacist reimbursement is 80% of the physician reimbursement, so it's actually a monetary positive for us to have pharmacists do this rather than physicians. And um, again, you just, you need somebody at the top to, to help drive this, I think, unless you're in a smaller practice. But in a group like ours, we, we really did need that. And so um, I really do hope everybody will think about this if it's the right kind of practice setting for you. It's been very successful for us. And if there are any questions, we'd be happy to take them. Would you like to uh, pay uh, the pharmacist the amount of programs around? Yeah, so in, um, the question is, are there PGY2 pharmacy residency programs for pain management around? Um, there are, and in the Seattle setting, we do have one. But when I've looked at their curriculum, um, it's usually very much so more operative and inpatient focus. And to find PGY2 programs that actually focus on chronic opioid therapy and chronic pain management in the ambulatory setting, that's not the main focus of their PGY2 programs. Um, so that's why we developed our own internal curriculum. And um, all of our team is board certified in PGY1, at least trained. But again, pain's not part of it, so we developed our own curriculum for it. I have two questions. Um, you mentioned um, previously that you had clinical pharmacists in cardiology and smoking cessation. What else did you have? And then my second question is you had two campuses, one in Central Washington. Um, what are the pharmacists split up between the two campuses? Yeah, so the first question on um, kind of a more robust overview of the clinical pharmacy services in the ambulatory setting. We are part of um, five or six clinical teams. So we have in cardiology, primary care, um, transplant nephrology, endocrinology, neurology, physical medicine or rehab. So those are in IBD, so GI, so we have an IBD pharmacist. So those are our six ambulatory settings where our clinical pharmacists are integrated in. And then within those, then are the disease states that they manage. And primary care is typically, you know, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, depression, anxiety, anemia management, smoking cessation, chronic pain now, polypharmacy med reviews, um, anticoagulation if needed, uh, anything that comes up really in primary care. In cardiology specifically, they're doing more of anticoagulation and heart failure management. And then the other ones are a little bit more self-explanatory with IBD and the neuro is um, MS, um, movement disorders, memory disorders, epilepsy, and then um, the 
pre and post-op management of the neurosurgery pain issues. Does that answer your first question? Yeah. Okay. And the second one's about the two campuses. So I will say um, our second campus joined our organization about three years ago, and so we are still shifting um, and aligning our cultures, and the first focus was on the inpatient side, so our hospitals became fully aligned just this year, and then next year we're going to start looking at aligning all of our ambulatory settings. The pharmacists at our second campus in uh, central Washington are only integrated into our primary care setting, and they do a lot of cardiovascular disease management, diabetes management, um, and one or I think we have two of them that do pain because they do want to replicate exactly what we're doing, but we've just had, <clears throat> excuse me, a slower um, growth potential there, and I think we have two of their 15 pharmacists doing pain management right now. Yes? You mentioned um, that you have primary care patients, they shifted their patients that were kind of in that in-between section, like around 90 um, to, to see a pain specialist. In the, I recognize that the law is 100, 120 and above, but what did that kind of look like culturally with those patients or with those providers shifting those patients towards primary care and kind of letting go of them? It's hard to do that. You know, we have these long-standing relationships, and we have this strong desire to have less work to do in our section. And so we still have half of our patients that are under 90 morphine equivalents in our section, and it's just it's kind of hard to cut the cord. Um, our providers in primary care have been very good about accepting those patients. And so what we try to do is give everybody a three-month head up and say, we're going to do this in three months. Is everybody on board for that? And then we do it. Uh, so they've been re really accepting. I think it's been a little tough for them in primary care to say we're not going to do anything over 90 morphine equivalents because um, we can't really manage all of those patients, and some of those really are doing okay at higher doses. And so this is something that they struggle with a bit, and, and they're still violating their own rules here a little bit, but I think they're doing it much more thoughtfully than they had before. I'm not sure if that answers your yeah, question. Yeah, you kind of answered it in reverse, but that, that definitely worked out. I was more interested in like the primary care physicians feeling forced to shift patients to, to pain management, um, but that's it's interesting to hear both perspectives. With Feel, Feeling forced to send them to us. Yes, instead. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're not upset about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew and I yeah. did a pilot last summer where we went to one of our primary care sites for one day per month or two days per month to see their most difficult patients. And I mean, they're just so excited. Every lunch period, we come and do case talks. They have patients on a wait list to see us. Um, so the PCPs will take any help that they can get from our specialists, um, yeah. but we just don't have enough to go around. And my second question is, can you talk a little bit more about what the transitions of care work looks like? Um, so what, what is the pharmacist seeing the patient after surgery at their one-week post-op appointment, or is it a separate office visit that the pharmacist has an office that the patient's coming to? What does that look like? Yeah, so, um, so this is our neurology pharmacist. So she's, in terms of where her office is located, she's in the neurology department going in and out of the exam rooms and our flow stations just like everybody else. That one-week post-op appointment is bundled into all the post-op care, the patient comes in and sees a ton of people. Just like the pre-op appointment is bundled into their pre-op process. And um, so those are the same day and aligned with other providers on the team. Any appointments after that are solo. The patient's typically coming in just to see the pharmacist for med management. Um, 
depends on the patient. Some of them, it ends up taking us two months to get them back down the baseline. And in which case, if they're cleared from the um, neurosurgeons and they're just working on taper, we'll actually hand it off to the primary care pharmacist at the primary care site if it's within Virginia Mason, and that primary care pharmacist will finish out the taper to avoid an additional visit with a pharmacist in neurology and maybe they live 20, 30 minutes outside Seattle and they don't want to come downtown. Um, so we do partner and shift patients as appropriate, um, but that first week is bundled and then after that it's their own appointments. Does that answer your question? Anything else? All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks for coming.